1: And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast. Episode 251, an interview with Walter R. Borneman about his latest book, Brothers Down, Pearl Harbor and the Fate of the Many Brothers Aboard the USS Arizona. Historian and author Walter Borneman has contributed mightily to the story of World War II with his previous books, MacArthur at War and The Admirals. Nimitz, Halsey, Leahy, and King. And now, with brothers down, Mr. Bornemann examines the tragedy of Pearl Harbor through the eyes of dozens of brothers and other family members. Few know that there were 78 brothers, as well as a father and son, on the USS Arizona. In an era where family members serving together was accepted, even encouraged, 63 of Arizona's 1,177 dead were brothers, a staggering 80% casualty rate. So, Mr. Bornemann, thank you very much for being with us today. Good to be with you, Ray. All right, so if you don't mind, we'll just jump into it. I'm sure you're a busy man. So, the first thing I wanted to ask was, what gave you the idea to tell what is essentially, the story of Pearl Harbor from this unique angle. Well,
0: you know, as, as you mentioned, the, the other books that I've done, The Admirals, sort of a big-picture look at America's four five-star admirals. Mm-hmm. Of course, MacArthur, a uh, big-picture uh, look at him and, and a dynamic personality. But, you know, as as I researched The Admirals, I was only really at Pearl Harbor vaguely aware of the sets of brothers who were on the Arizona. Mm-hmm. But after MacArthur, as I started to look around for another topic, you know, you always try to think of something a little bit unique, a little bit different angle. And every time I would mention to anybody, just kind of as an aside, "Why well, did you know there were 38 sets of brothers on the Arizona at Pearl Harbor? Everyone was amazed and, and astonished. Mm-hmm. 38 sets of brothers, 78 men out of a crew of about 1,500. How could that possibly be? And as I looked into it a little bit more, and of course I'm, I'm not telling the story of, of all 38 sets, that would be right. a, almost an impossible narrative, right. but a, a, as, I, as I looked into those family stories, it really became clear that These men, and a lot of them were just boys, 18, 19-year-old boys, coming out of middle America Mm -hmm. at that time, really conveyed a sense of what America was like in 1941. And, of course, I've tried to tell their story against the broader story and the context of where the country was going and then, of course, the the horrendous uh, activity at, at Pearl Harbor itself on December 7th
1: yeah I, I totally agree with that by the time I finished reading your book I, I'm, I'm intimidated when it comes to all things naval but by the time I finished your book I really did get a sense of the various positions what these people had to do what their responsibilities were certainly when it comes to when they're being attacked and when they're not being attacked so that I enjoyed it was like a, a little window into, into that world but but you bring up a good point I I was shocked when you um, when I read that there were so many brothers on board the because you would think that would be counterintuitive. So, so I just have to ask, um, why were so many brothers allowed to serve on the same warship? And, and do you know if that's still the practice today?
0: Well, you know, in, in part because it was good business for the Navy. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of these older brothers joined up because they desperately needed jobs coming out of the Depression and coming off family farms, where sometimes making 30 $35 a month and sending ten dollars of that home made a big difference. Right. So not only when Big Brother showed up back on the family farm did he look pretty good in his navy uniform, <laughs> uh, you know, as a great recruiting poster right. for the for the navy. But also it's like, oh, you're getting a steady j- income, and that's a lot better than than the meager few dollars uh, a week that that I'm getting here digging ditches, for example, as as one of the younger brothers had had a job doing. So it, it's 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 kind of interesting, the Navy, despite the fact, and we can talk about the Sullivan brothers at some point if you want, everyone seems to know the story of those five, Mm -hmm. but even after the Sullivan brothers were lost in 1942, the Navy never absolutely forbid brothers serving together. They came to discourage it, and they had sort of a similar sole survivor policy, just like the Army did, uh, Uh a la Saving Private Ryan. Uh But they didn't actually go on to muster rolls and break up brothers, even after the Sullivan brothers.
1: That's incredible. But I think you're right, though. I mean, just um imagine— I guess it made maybe these people feel better because literally they're coming from the farms of Kansas. What do they know about the sea? What do they know about the ships? If they can serve with people they know, much less their brothers or whatever, I would imagine that would, you know, help them make that transition. And we'll get into that a little later. But as your book, even though you talk about several of the vessels on the day that Pearl Harbor is attacked, you really do zoom in on the USS Arizona. So I was hoping you could introduce us to that particular vessel.
0: Sure, the the Arizona is is really a cutting edge weapon of its day when it's launched in 1915. It really doesn't uh, see service in World War One directly. Of course, there's not a, a, any really U.S. battleship role in in World War One, mm. uh, other than later in the war going to Europe and being in, in European waters. But at that particular point, for the buildup in naval might, and you know, I got to remember that most of it at that point. Steel battleships have really come online in the Spanish-American War, 1898. There's a big battleship uh, building rush between uh, Germany and Great Britain. The United States participates in that uh, as well as, as Japan. Mm. And when the Arizona is launched in 1915, it's 608 feet long. It's got 12 14-inch guns. It's of a very similar class of, of battleships. There are a number of classes with a little bit different specifications, but all of these pre-World War II battleships are basically about the same size and have the same armaments. They have the same uh, sailing speed to facilitate uh, joint operations and things. So the, the Arizona is is sort of at the top of its game. Now, after World War I, Washington Naval Conference comes along and at least Great Britain and the United States, Japan's a signatory to it, but it doesn't really follow it mm-hmm. for very long. Washington Naval Conference, everybody says, we're not going to build any more battles battleships. battleships um and by the time 1931 1932 comes along the arizona has undergone a a pretty major facelift and by december 7th 1941 there are nine battleships similar to the arizona all you know you got to remember whatever that is 25 30 years old getting getting kind of long in the tooth
1: that that are
0: at pearl harbor
1: uh, so so for a while, the United States, and I can't remember the exact dates, I'm sorry, you you were saying in your book that for, for X amount of years, the United States wasn't making any more battleships, but they certainly were improving the ones that they had, taking advantage of any, I guess, changes in technology that came along.
0: Changes in technology, interestingly enough, there's not a lot of anti-aircraft uh, guns put on yet. Uh-huh. There's some of them. Of that, one of the things that happens on the morning of December sixth, the repair ship, kind of a construction ship as well, Vestal ties up alongside Arizona mm-hmm. and figures in the story of the attack the next day. But what happens is that uh, carpenters from the Vestal come aboard the Arizona and they're beginning to work uh, additional um, building and attachment things related to a radar that's going to be installed. So all of those. Kind of things are are being put aboard uh, the ship slowly but surely, and you know we we've got a situation where even the navy is saying when it's usually about once a year these ships go to Bremerton and Washington for kind of an annual overhaul, if mm-hmm. you will. Right. And the last time the Arizona is at Bremerton, they actually do things like forbid the crew from having personal radios aboard. They have have those sent ashore. Uh, The big silver tea service that's that's part of formal Navy uh, dinners and things is left ashore. So it's really clear that slowly but surely the Arizona and its crew are being prepared for
1: war. Uh, if if I may, because you, you covered this in your book, but I'd like to ask a follow-up question. I'm assuming that maybe one of the reasons there weren't so many anti-aircraft guns on the ship as there could have been was, I guess, some of the holdovers that still saw the battleship as the end-all, be-all of naval weapons, and then everything else would be secondary to that. Would that be well, accurate?
0: Well, oh, I think that's absolutely accurate. And, and, you know, and again, we can talk about some of the logistics of, of what happens that week in December and why there's so many battleships there. But from the Navy standpoint, and certainly from Admiral Kimmel's standpoint, who's the commander in chief of the Pacific Fleet, mm-hmm. there's this mentality that, that he expects to be called upon to sail west at some point. And do that with uh, a fleet of battleships, a la uh, George Dewey during the Spanish-American War and attacking Manila. You know, the Navy still, most of them, thinking about major battleship-to-battleship encounters with, with the Japanese Navy. And I think one of the reasons that Kimmel has eight battleships in Pearl Harbor all at once is that he's anticipating perhaps having to sail west and counter a Japanese threat that everyone at that point probably expects is going to happen, but they certainly expected to happen more against the British in Singapore or the Americans in the Philippines, not against the Hawaiian Islands.
1: Right. And, and I'm glad you brought that up, because as far as I can tell, the general attitude, I guess, as far as the Navy or those that matter to the Navy was, at some point, Japan's going to cross a line, we'll amass our battleships, we'll sail uh, west will have one single massive engagement with their Navy, defeat them, and then for all intents and purposes, the war is over, and then we'll dictate terms to them. I I guess there's just a certain amount of American arrogance in that, and just refusing to think that anybody else might be thinking outside the box.
0: Well, and I think also kind of the old saw about fighting the last war.
1: Uh I mean... By last
0: war in terms of a World War One in the North Atlantic, that's a little different. But but the last real war in the Pacific has been the Spanish American War forty years before. And again, exactly that sort of thing. Uh, Dewey's squadron at that point was actually in Hong Kong sailing to the Philippines. But yeah, that, there's there's a battleship mentality. And of course, it, it's kind of interesting. There are people, including Ernest J. King, who's not yet before Pearl Harbor, not yet put in charge of the of the. Um, overall U.S fleet. Mm-hmm. But King has been involved with uh, aircraft uh, carrier operations. Obviously Bill Halsey has been involved and we can talk about why the carriers, uh, particularly uh, Enterprise and Lexington, weren't at Pearl Harbor uh, on December 7th. they're actually out delivering planes toward uh, Wake Island. Uh, Enterprise and Halsey accomplishes that. The Lexington's supposed to be delivering planes to um, reinforcement planes to Midway. The third, car- the third carrier in the Pacific, Saratoga, has just left Bremerton after an overhaul, and it's uh, sailing down the west coast bound for San Diego in order to take on its its air squadrons. So there, there is this group of people in the U.S. Navy, and certainly there are three carriers deployed in, in the Pacific. But, you know, these battleships are so much slower than the carriers Uh, they can't keep up with the carriers and you know that's one reason a lot of people sometimes say well wait bill halsey's out there delivering um marine aircraft to reinforce defenses at wake why didn't the battleships go with them Mm -hmm. well the battleships didn't go with them because the the carriers are 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 at least 10 to 15 depending on how knots depending on how uh, they're sailing Mm -hmm. faster than than the battleships and they're just high-speed delivery vehicles and a uh, lot of submarine activity. We can talk about that in, in, a, in a minute. Um, a lot of submarine activity that, that Kimmel and others are worried about. So you send the carriers out fast and furious and back, and, and the battleships end up sitting in Pearl Harbor.
1: Ah, uh, okay, that makes sense. And, and I just have to add on to this, because you cover this in your book. It was ironic and we'll get to we'll I guess we'll get to the why soon. But it was ironic that so many battleships were in port on December seventh. And it was also ironic for a different set of reasons why the carriers weren't going or weren't going to be there on December 7th, which obviously is um uh, going to force the Americans to use their carriers as they start to try to get out from under the attack of Pearl Harbor. But I, I love the way that you describe that uh in your book. If I may take this in a different direction for a moment um one of the things that I enjoyed most were the uh, backstories of all these like you said very young men who signed up and i get that they the steady income you know that not only are they able to not be a burden on their family another mouth to feed but they can actually send money home but i'm just trying to wrap my head around it's 1939 it's 1940 and some 18 year old or 17 year old from kansas who probably didn't finish high school is going to go from the farm to a battleship i mean just just that transition to to life at sea taking those kind of orders, dealing with the reality of living on a floating city. I just imagine it must have been quite a change for them. And I just wonder how they dealt with that kind of transition.
0: It's a huge transition. I mean, some of these young men have not been out of the county where they were born. (laughs) Right. you know, they're they're boarding probably a train in those days, maybe a bus if it's if it's relative, if they live relatively close to these training centers. Mm-hmm. Most of the training, of course, was done either at Great Lakes. Uh, on, on Lake Michigan or at, at San Diego. And once you went through basic training, basic training was pretty short in, in, in those days. Uh. And basically, your your whole experience and additional training really occurred on board ship. And you're absolutely right. There's, there's a, a young man, a Marine. Part of my story, not only about the Navy men, but there's a Marine detachment on these battleships, about 88 men on the Arizona. Mm-hmm. And a couple of the pairs of brothers, um, actually one's in the Navy and one's in the Marine. Uh, but the the Marine, Russell Durio, writes home and basically says, you know, this ship is longer than the main street where in, in <laughs> town where I grew up in Sunset, Louisiana. I, and, and that's incredible. And I, I think if there's themes from these brothers writing home. And that's part of the reason that we said before that I think that there's some comfort level between brothers who are together on the ship, adjusting to the kind mm-hmm. of new life and much bigger picture life that, that, that you mentioned. And I think there's a comfort level with folks left behind too, that, you know, well, Sonny and Buddy are together and, and, and things are going to be okay. But if there's common themes to these young men trying to adjust to this new life, mm-hmm. I think those themes are that they all miss their family a great deal, Many times there's girlfriends involved. Um, missed home cooking, boy. I mean, you know, a, a lot of stories and letters say, "Oh, I, you know, you got to make that pie next time I'm home. I'm, I'm sorry I missed that, or you know, the, the, the fried chicken here is okay, but it's not like Mama did. You know, those kind of stories that are that are in the book, and you know, I think somewhat tragically. Mm-hmm. You know, there's young men writing home who had dreams of going to college, right. and economic necessity mandated that you know they couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the one of the young Becker brothers writes to a cousin saying, "Man, I, I, he wanted to be an artist." And Wesley writes home basically saying, "You know, I, I wish I'd been able to go to um, to Kansas State with with you, but it it just it didn't turn out that way."
1: Right. And, and I'm going to ask you to introduce us to some of the uh, men the families covered in your book. But I just wanted to add on add on to what you just said. I'm again, I'm just trying to imagine a seventeen year old from Kansas going through the training, going out West, getting on a ship. And then suddenly he's seen or he's talking to it, living with men from all over the country. I mean, like you said, some of them never left their county. And suddenly he's talking to someone from Virginia, from New York, from California. I just imagine that might have been a, a cultural shock as well. Well, I
0: agree. I mean, America in the late 30s uh, is is pretty provincial. There's mm-hmm. There's been... You know, some migration related to the Depression and, and trying to get out of the Dust Bowl. Ah. But it's, it's really not until these men, as you suggest, from, from all parts of the country and, you know, a lot of them were from rural backgrounds because, quite frankly, America was pretty rural at that point. Mm-hmm. But as they're thrown together on these ships, there's, it suddenly becomes much more of a, of a cosmopolitan experience than than the little provincialism of their hometowns.
1: Right. So, um, okay, so now that that we've um, kind of covered their background, if you could, please, and I know you covered a lot of these men in your book, but if you want to pick the ones, um, either the favorite to you or the ones that really stood stood out, if you could introduce us to some of these characters, please. Well, sure.
0: And let me give you just a couple of examples. Uh, There's actually a (laughs) father-son. team on on board the Arizona which is, is kind of amazing mm-hmm. uh, Thomas Augusta free mm-hmm. is someone who joined the Navy prior to World War I. he then tried to make a living farming and his nickname was Gussie out of that middle uh, name of Augusta right. and Gus, Gussie free rejoined the Navy by that time he had a very uh, young son William and by 1941 uh, Gussie has put in all almost 20 years. Wow. So at, at, and because he's been out a little bit, he's about 50 at, at that point. And he reports to the Arizona and he's kind of looking for one last good uh, assignment before mm. uh, retiring as a 20 year man. Well, William, uh, there's a, as so often happens, there's a divorce involved in the family and young William ends up being raised by an aunt and uncle in Texas. Right. Doesn't see his dad a lot and wow how great it is that that william as a young seaman reports to the arizona and this happens in in 1941 and suddenly he's on the same ship as his dad wow. and uh it's you know again in peacetime uh gussie hasn't been able to spend a lot of time with this young man growing up it's it's, it's just great yeah uh, it, you know, and it's not unfortunately because there's so many deaths, it's not giving anything way to the story. But the, those experiences, and almost by luck of the draw, because young William is ac- actually has an opportunity to stay ashore on the night of December seventh. But they both they both end up on the ship that morning. And of course, the father and son end up up dying. Yeah. Um, I just mentioned one more family, sure. the the Shive, the Shive family. Um, these are two brothers that that grow up in Laguna Beach. You know, they're kind of the barefoot uh, lads of Laguna, and life's good and everything. And de- depression comes along, and somehow they're making a uh, eking out things. Mother's taking in laundry, and all of a sudden, their dad dies. Mm. And you know, this is the '30s. Uh, mother. Uh, yeah, there's probably some economic necessity in this uh, remarries, and you know suddenly there there's a new male in the family and a stepdad, and these brothers kind of rebe- rebel as as teenagers against that. Gordon, the oldest, escapes first. He joins the Marines, mm. and you know in those days you had to be good to be assigned to the marine detachment on on board these uh, capital ships and gordon gets assigned to the arizona's uh, marine detachment as a marine he rows in the uh, whaleboat uh, rowing crew uh, in in competition with the marine crew mm-hmm. uh, all all's good and uh, younger brother malcolm who's not quite the athlete a little bit more studious but he sort of escaped the home life by, by going to radio school so that when he does join the Navy, he's got kind of a leg up and he becomes a radio woman. Right. And of course, uh, Gordon and Malcolm, uh, again, these two brothers together, uh, you know, a lot of people sometimes think, oh, the fleet was in uh, based in Pearl Harbor and you go into Honolulu and have a great time and everything. Mm-hmm. But both of these young men, the Shive brothers, I think were very similar to a lot of folks that... Yeah, you did that maybe once or twice, but basically you stayed aboard ship. You uh, studied for, in, in Malcolm's case, it, advancing up the, the ranks of, of the radio crew, and, and you, you really saved your money, sent your money home, both of these young men out of their paychecks, of a few bucks a month are automatically sending 5 or 10 dollars a month home to their mother lois so you know both of those stories the freeze and, and the shives are are they're they're all kind of different in a way but they all have some similar themes to them
1: right and and that was one of the things i think i really enjoyed about your book i really got an idea of What it was like day to day, they're either uh, for these guys on ship, they're either getting ready for their next exam, they have their various duties. Um, there, some of them are not even going to shore because they don't want to be tempted because they know that they're there to earn money for the family and they're and they're disciplined in that in that way, and they stay home and they were and they're writing letters constantly to the parents and i'm sure they loved to receive letters um from home as well uh, but so just that human interest drama but at the same time just the day-to-day activities you really got a sense of what it was like and and you make this point in your book if you've got a good captain aboard who will take care of you and look after you life could be pretty good and there's some captors who weren't all that great and, and life could be a lot harder but it sounds like the men of arizona uh, had a good captain <laughs>
0: They definitely did in Captain Van Valkenburg, and you know I think he was well respected, and and he took he took care of his men as as well. Mm-hmm. There was a story from the thirties of uh, wasn't one of the brothers, but one of the the crewmen aboard. Uh, somehow, in coming off duty, he he missed going ashore. They were in 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 Washington, Bremerton at, mm-hmm. at that point. Mish, missed going ashore and was missing his uh, wedding day. <laughs> so the captain of Van Valkenburg just said, "Here, take my." (laughs) And so this lowly seaman takes the captain's gig ashore so he can uh, uh, get to his wedding on time. Of course, that those kind of stories, you know, spread like wildfire below decks. And and you know, in this particular case, stood stood the captain aces high.
1: Right. If I may, I, I want to take it in a slightly uh, different direction. So your book covers the, the buildup to the attack at Pearl Harbor and then about a week out before the attack, it goes into a minute detail that I really appreciated. But I just have to ask your opinion based on your research. The negotiations between the Japanese and between the United States, you know, the Americans were being arrogant, the Japanese were being realistic. And so there's there's some, you know, imperfection on both sides. In your opinion, was a continuing peace possible between these two countries?
0: I think it was pretty clear that something was going to happen, and a great many people understood that. Mm. I think we need to keep in mind that China has been at war with Japan uh, since 1937, with, with Japan in, in, in invading and, and capturing places like Shanghai and Nanking. And, and of course, there's the famous uh, attack on the American gun, gunboat in the Yangtze River in 1937, uh, the Panay, that, that might have triggered a war then, but I I think Franklin Roosevelt and a number of folks in the Navy realized that uh, the U.S. wasn't ready mm-hmm. uh, either militarily or psychologically with so much isolation in, in the country. It's July of 1941 that that FDR, uh, with the United States, Great Britain, and the Netherlands, imposes this big oil embargo against Japan as a way of trying to keep them from from moving south into um, the East Indies. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, you know that really has uh, the opposite effect. It sort of expedites uh, Japan's need to get to those natural resources. And it's kind of interesting that on December 5th, there is a cabinet meeting that Roosevelt basically asks the cabinet for just a little bit of, of friendly advice. If the Japanese attack the British at Singapore, mm-hmm. and there is a lot of expectation and a lot of radio traffic that indicates that's going to happen, what's the United States going to do? Right. And, you know, the cabinet doesn't really give any firm answers. And, and quite frankly, it wasn't a vote and FDR is going to do whatever he judged best at the time anyway. Right. But I but I think that, that that's what they're thinking about. They're thinking about two things. They're thinking about this Japanese drive south mm-hmm. And we can kind of now segue back to maybe about the submarine activity and the battleships all in, in port at once. There's also this expectation in the Navy folks at Pearl Harbor is not only whatever's going to happen, it's going to be a long ways away mm-hmm. on the west side of the Pacific, but if there is a threat to Pearl Harbor, it's going to come from Japanese submarines moving northeast out of the market Uh islands that's the direction they expect the attack to come from not the carrier based attack that comes in from the north even though (laughs) the navy has already war gamed exactly during the two times during the 1930s already war game just that sort of carrier attack from the north right
1: yeah, and you even say in your book that the, the people that were defending were angry because they did it on a Sunday morning. And I'm like, that's what war games are. You have to, you know, pretend to be the enemy and what's best for you. But I, I again, I just wonder about America's attitude at the time. I think you're right. That's like something's going to happen. We don't know where. We don't know when. It probably won't be here. And it probably won't be us. It'd be the British. And then we have to decide what we're going to do as a country. And so, again, I think it's just that attitude is what helped the Japanese just come in and make this surprise attack. Exactly. Exactly. So if if I could, uh, going back to kind of the men and women of your book for a moment, when you quote the letters... I enjoyed that so much. Some of those phrases really stuck with me. And again, you you make this point that these are very young people. Some of them haven't even finished high school. They either wanted or needed to get out of there where they lived for various reasons. And you get the sense that some of them were just starting to plan their lives. The one guy maybe wanted to be an artist or maybe they had an understanding with a girl back home. But In in some ways, they pour their hearts out in the letters, but in some ways, they put on a brave face. I guess they were trying to, I guess they were being realistic. You have to go out and make money, but I certainly do miss you. And they wish things could have been different.
0: Well, I think that's absolutely right. And I I think one of the things that really struck me Mm -hmm. from hearing these family stories and reading these letters, it really underscores the fact that, Even at the rank and file Mm -hmm. throughout the fleet, everyone expected something to happen. They didn't expect the the cataclysmic uh, events of the the morning of December 7th in Pearl Harbor. but there was an expectation they were going to be called upon to sail west as as we talked about before mm-hmm. and war clouds i think when i when i really study these letters and i really realize that america generally and certainly the people who were in the armed forces had more of an expectation of building up for war, then I think sometimes is, is portrayed in American history that wow, all of a sudden it's, it's December seventh, the horrendous attack, and and we're at war. Right. Well, there's certainly a, there's certainly a buildup to that. And you know, I got I got to quote one letter for you from this seaman, uh, Bud Bud Height. Mm-hmm. Exactly that. He's 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 got a girl back home and. You know he writes her a couple of weeks before December seventh about, you know we both know there's going to be a war at some point, and then, you know, almost pleading, you know let let's let's not waste a minute of it next time I'm home on leave and her family mm-hmm. uh, really always told the story and expected that he had a ring for her aboard the Arizona Mm -hmm. and then he would come home on on the next leave. They had actually been, you know, sometimes there's some short-term relationships, but he had actually been dating, Bud and Donna had been dating for a period of of a couple years, uh, hometown girl where where he grew up, uh, and and that he was going to bring her a ring and, and propose.
1: This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth and in order to grow you need to know what's going on for comprehensive financial news and analysis visit the brand behind every great investor yahoo finance.com the number 1 financial destination yahoo finance.com that's yahoo finance.com so if we could um, let's zoom in on the arizona for a moment just before the attack Um, And if you could tell us just some of the stories of the people in your book, what was going on that morning. And again, you just draw this picture. These people are just getting up. It's Sunday. Some of them maybe are hungover. Some of them have got, you know, maybe a football game or whatever to watch. They're just getting started with their day. And then all hell breaks loose.
0: And and there's some irony about whether you're on the ship or not, Mm -hmm. because some of these brothers who have older brothers who have been in the Navy, a few of them have wives in, in Honolulu. Navy right. kind of frowned on that, but uh, particularly if you could get a job as a nurse or, or a clerk, uh, a, no, a number of wives did relocate to to Honolulu. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's there's uh, it's kind of poignant about invitations that were extended to younger brothers to stay in Honolulu. Right. Oh, no, they wanted to go back to the ship for one reason or another. And, you know, they end up there on, on the morning. On December seventh, mm-hmm. and of course it is a, sun, a Sunday morning, so things are a little bit laid back. The, um, the, the spit and polish inspections have happened on on Saturday, and everybody's a little bit more low key. But I to just tell you the story of the Christiansen brothers, um, Sonny is the younger one, and he's just recently. Um, I'm sorry, Sonny's the older one. He's been on. He's a baker, and he's been on there uh, for a while. Buddy, uh, both of these brothers are from Kansas. Buddy Buddy Christensen has just reported in October of 1941 aboard ship to be with his, his older brother. And they both meet on deck that morning at 730 with plans to go into Honolulu and take a photo of them both in their uniforms to send home to mom in Kansas as, as, as a Christmas present. And, of course, you have to go through uh, an inspection with the officer of the deck and all, and and Buddy notices a, a, a smudge in uh, Sonny's hat. Well, that's never going to pass muster, and that's yeah. not going to look good for the photo. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Buddy says, wait a minute, or Sonny says, wait a minute, uh, you know, I, I'll go below and get another hat. And then he disappears below decks, and Buddy never sees him again. Uh, the Japanese planes come in. There is, in fact, um, uh, General Hoarder sounded, everyone who could run to their battle stations. Uh, you know, there's a set of twins uh, aboard, uh, John and, and Jake Anderson. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Anderson is in charge, he's a boatswain's mate, in charge of um, being, uh, setting up deck chairs for church services. Right. And he's, he's above decks at, at that point. And um Basically, the, the situation is that uh, he he looks desperately for his brother mm-hmm. after the attack and during the midst of the attack, and, and he, John uh, survives, but his twin does not.
1: Right. I, I just have to say, the most poignant part of the book for me was the morning of December 7th, and you know what's coming. They don't. And you go into these various stories, and like you said, for various reasons, some of them... Should have been on the boat, but weren't. Some of them were on the ship and weren't, you know, whatever. And just, you, you just, it just tugs at you because you know what's about to happen. And it's these little tiny decisions that affect their lives, whether... You know, for the rest of their lives, or whether their life is going to end that day, um, and so I don't want to give too much away for the readers. I want them to enjoy that, but I have to ask you, please, to tell us uh, tell us the story of Lieutenant Commander Sam Fuqua of the Arizona. I hope I'm saying his last name right, but this guy was, as far as I, as far as I'm concerned, this guy was Superman. Given everything that had happened around him and the way he reacted to it.
0: Well, Sam Fuqua is the damage control officer, and uh, after the captain is killed almost instantaneously on on the bridge, Mm -hmm. uh, he's the ranking officer aboard, and he really does try to do some measure of of damage control. He hears the planes, he's eating breakfast, he races to the quarter deck, Uh, he's knocked momentarily unconscious by a bomb explosion, Uh, not the horrific uh, magazine explosion in the forward part of the ship, but one of the first bombs. It strikes aft, right. and uh, you know he comes to. There's the horrendous explosion up forward, and he really does try to uh, rally the men. Tries to get as many of them off as possible into some of the uh, the small boats and and all. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's really really clear. And and again, he wins the medal of honor for for these efforts. It's really really clear that. The forward magazines, when they explode, the ship literally lifts out of the water falls back upon itself, decks collapsing. And there's a quote in the book from from one of the seamen who finally says to Foucault, Commander, there's no use fighting it anymore. And, you, you know, it's, it, it's sort of an obvious half the crew that does survive, who have been above decks toward the stern, have been blown off into the water anyway mm-hmm. by the, the cataclysmic forward uh, explosion. Right. And then you know, the, Fukua's story after that, of course, is that he's the one that has to write so many of the letters. He's the one in charge of ultimately assembling the must final muster roll: mm-hmm. who survived, who didn't, notifying families. And it's it's a pretty pretty grim grim task.
1: Right, just the way that he was fighting against incredible odds that go to then impossible odds but he was still trying and he was still calm the entire it, it was it was just amazing And you're right someone actually had to point out to him look this is not going to work um and that's when i guess he gives the order to abandon ship or whatever but his story is amazing however i don't want to give too much away because you and i have only talked about what 60 percent of the book i want to leave a lot for people to figure out but you did a great job of building up these people. You get to know their backstory. You get them to the ship, you get them to December 7th. And then when all hell breaks loose, then they all have to to go from there. And like you said, a minute ago, one of the brothers was like, I don't care about the fire, the explosions, the bullets, the shrapnel, the oil. I just want to find my brother. I mean, there was just some incredible stories in there that we're going to, we're going to leave for everybody to find. But, since I have you here, and I thank you very much for your time, uh, but since I have you here, your your book, MacArthur War, I have read that three times, and I love that so much. And since you're here, I just have to ask you two quick questions, if I could. I would love to get your impression or your thoughts on MacArthur's reaction to the initial parts of the Philippines being attacked and attacked with everything with his chief of staff, uh, kind of putting everybody off. In your opinion, I mean, what's what's going on that morning with MacArthur, and, and how come he's not let, letting anybody talk to him, at least for a couple of hours?
0: Well, I think if there's one word that kind of sums up his reaction, mm-hmm. it's stunned.
1: Right.
0: Now, you know, MacArthur's on record is only a couple of days before telling um uh, one of the British admirals who's visited Manila, that he expects war with Japan and not until the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, MacArthur's one of these guys that always moved on MacArthur's time yeah. right. Sometimes, sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, December 7th, or it's actually December 8th, uh, Philippine time, that morning with uh, notice of the attack on Pearl Harbor, Mm-hmm. MacArthur uh, is supposed to follow the, the war plans and actually launch a raid against uh, Formosa, launch his b-17 bombers. right You know we talk about battleships as a strategic weapon. The B-17s that MacArthur had were supposed to be strategic weapons to to really counter uh, Japanese thrust southward. In fact, Kind of the interesting story back to Pearl Harbor is that the B-17s, and, you know, we've all seen Torah, Torah, Torah yeah. so many times, the B-17s that so famously fly into Pearl Harbor during the height of the Japanese attack mm-hmm. were a squadron that were supposed to continue on to the Philippines oh. and continue to reinforce MacArthur. Right. Well, you know, I think that MacArthur is is uh, stunned. He delays for a long time. And, you know, I, I've written in MacArthur at War considerable uh, analysis of the Clark Field disaster. And as usual in history, the shorthand, well, MacArthur got caught with his planes on the ground, isn't quite all the the whole story. The the bombers were actually flushed. The planes were put in the air, uh, actually by a junior officer, not by MacArthur's command. Mm-hmm. But then, when uh, nothing happened in terms of a direct attack on on Clark Field, the uh, the planes had to re, re uh, had to land and and refuel. And then, of course, the attack uh, occurred. And the reason that there was that delay on the Japanese. East side was was that there had been a big fog front in Formosa and grounded a lot of the planes. So it's kind of a it's kind of a fascinating story about how that all transpires and, quite frankly, how MacArthur goes from kind of sitting on his hands on the morning of December eighth in the Philippines mm-hmm. to just a few months later being portrayed in the press at least, sometimes his <laughs> own press releases, uh, to being a fir- fairly great American hero.
1: Right. So I guess MacArthur, just like everybody else, is not perfect and he he can be taken by surprise as well. Um, And I have to be honest, the first time I read MacArthur at War, I didn't know much about MacArthur, but I, I had the sense that I wasn't a big fan of him. And I can at least say now that I understand him a lot better from reading your book. But one of the things that I enjoyed from that book was watching him evolve if you will as an overall commander because you get the sense that he's all about the army the army the army the army can do everything but i guess he starts to understand the other elements in this new modern warfare you've got the air you've got you got the navy and you've got to be able to make them work together as a smooth machine if you're going to hope to deflect the japanese thrusts um, as far south as they were
0: well, there certainly is no middle ground with Douglas MacArthur, but one of the things that I've tried to do right. in in that book is really tell both sides of the story and criticize him when I felt criticism was appropriate, but also show exactly what you say in terms of his evolution as a leader. Mm-hmm. He's very much the whole mentality. I mean, he's done trench warfare in World War One, wow. So he's very much a mentality of uh, fixed fortifications and army, army, army. Mm-hmm. But the whole geography, uh, the whole expanse, the whole nature of his campaigns in in the southwest pacific really uh, mean that he has to evolve as a commander and because of the new technologies embrace what today we we term uh combined uh operations and kind of take all that for granted Mm -hmm. but uh to his credit he found Able men in air, land, and sea operations to uh, basically run those units of his joint command and do a good job of it. The the other thing that that's just really mind-boggling of that, you know, those kind of combined operations mm-hmm. in the fall of 1943 against Ley in New Guinea are are basically, you know, a few squadrons of planes. Um, D- destroyers and destroyer transports, uh, putting a few people ashore, in, you know, in, in battalion and brigade strength in, mm-hmm. in some of these locations. Contrast that with a year later in the fall of 1944, when a 600-ship invasion force appears off Leyte, and all, that whole campaign uh, ensues. So I, I think that there, there, you have to evolve, and, you know, we, we can... We can talk at, at, at some point about how MacArthur did that in, in in various cases, but a lot of it was that he, he did have a great ability to recognize good people, like George Kenny with his Air Force, like mm-hmm. Robert Eichelberger with his army, uh, and, and give them uh, a fair amount of leash, if you will, in order to get the job done.
1: Absolutely, Mr. Borman. I would love to have you back on the show at some time and drill down into that book, because... Watching MacArthur change not only, you know, in some ways salvaged my opinion of him, not that it matters very much, but it also obviously made a huge difference in the Allied war effort that he was able to take to the fight to the Japanese and help bleed them, you know, because that was just one of the many theaters, but he certainly did his part in, in bleeding them and pushing them back. So, um, Mr. Borneman, as far as this new book, Brothers Down Pearl Harbor and the Fate of Many Brothers Aboard the USS Arizona, I just can't recommend it highly enough. And I certainly did appreciate the, just, just the, the stories of the average men and women that made a huge difference in World War II, sir. And I thank you very much for your time.
0: Well, Ray, great to be with you. Thank you.